How's your walk with Christ? <laughs> uh, I wonder how often we really do a checkup to see, you know, how we're doing. Uh, it's easy to coast, um, and I think God wants to do what he can do to prevent us from coasting. You know what I mean by coasting, just kind of put it in cruise control because there's no lane changes, no one else is on the highway, and you're just going for a long period of time. This is a boring road. But the Christian life isn't a boring road, is it? There's, there's potholes, and there's sharp turns, and there's cliffs, and, and, and there's lots of lane changes, and there's a lot of stuff coming at you. Uh, can't really go by on cruise control. If somebody were to ask you, hey, what's the, somebody told me about victory in Christ. Victory in Christ, conquering things in Christ that, that he'll get you through. Give me an example of that. Could you give me an example of that? Because I don't know what that is. How far back in your own life and testimony would you have to reach to give them an example of that? Like, would you have to go way far back in the time machine and dust off your testimony of when you gave your life to Christ and you dropped a few bad habits? Is that how far back? Or can you go to last year? Last month, how your marriage was here, but then God took it there when you were faithful and you prayed and you got the word involved or something about parenting, a parenting victory because instead of doing it the way your parents did it, instead of doing it the way everyone else in school does it, you went to the word and learned about parenting from there and then there were victories in your kid's life. Can we point to recent stuff? What we're going to see this morning is that God will disrupt your life to force you to have recent testimonies. It's because we forget. We forget what God has done. And when we forget, we fail to trust Him. We fail to trust Him with what's in front of us. We fail to trust Him with the things that are ahead of us. We fail to trust Him with tomorrow. We fail to trust Him with today because we forget the God of yesterday. We're in the book of Exodus. And you'll find us in chapter 13. Uh, Israel just got out, right? This is their testimony, how they got saved. They were released from bondage, released from slavery, and they're out. Now, this is great. Uh, but it gets worse, or it seems to get worse. In Exodus chapter 13, God sends them on a circular, winding, crooked path that if you were to look at a map makes no sense. Promised land is here. Egypt is there. Well, then go there. He sends them this way, that way. He, he puts them in the wrong place. If you've ever been hiking with someone who swears they know the way and then they get you lost, that kind of frustration you feel, that's what they're feeling toward Moses, Aaron, and God. So if you look at chapter 13, verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of land of the Philistines, although that was near. In other words, that would have been the close route, but we're not going there. Why? They can't handle it. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. I'll just pause there a second. Here's what we're dealing with, and we're going to see this in the next few chapters. Okay, God is dealing with a people that as soon as God stops doing something in their life, they're ready to just go back. Back to slavery, back to marching and stomping and making bricks without straw, dying in mud pits. 
Let's go back. Let's never mind. Let's go back. And he knows if I take them the short route, they're going to get scared of the Philistines and they're going to march back to Egypt. Now, can God defeat the Philistines? Sure. But it wasn't their time yet. When you read the passages, how the Amalekites and the, and the Hittites and the Jebusites, all these people, they've, God's had it up to here with them. Philistia, had, they're not quite there yet. David will take them out later. But right now, he's going to avoid that, put that on the shelf, and he's going to take them another way. And what God decides to do is put them in a place where they can't go back to Egypt. He's going to trap them between Egypt's chariots, who want to kill them, and then trap them and enslave them and take them back, whatever, whoever they don't kill. And then on the other side, the sea. But God led them, verse 18, but God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God surely will visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. So there's the fulfillment of that promise. Verse 20, and they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. What's an important point to pull out of that? The important point is they're not guessing where to go. They know exactly where God is taking them. In the daytime, it's this pillar of cloud and smoke. In the daytime, the thing that's producing that cloudy smoke is probably the pillar of fire, and they can see it clearly in the nighttime. So they know exactly where to go. They're not, there's no question as to where God wants them to go, and he leads them into a trap. And so they come up against the Red Sea at the edge of the wilderness there, and they are shut in. God, Pharaoh's heart is hardened in chapter 14, verse 4. God says, I'll harden his heart, he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So Pharaoh arms up his chariots and gets his army together. Verse 9, the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army. It's a little bit of an overkill. You got scrawny slaves that were, yesterday they were in pits, right? And now they're, they're marching. They don't have chariots. They don't have horses. They don't have a cavalry. They don't have a, a line of archers. But Pharaoh's throwing everything he's got. And then verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they said, hey, the God who rained frogs, the God who rained hail, the God who, the God who kills the firstborn, drops the cattle dead, turns the Nile to river, he's going to do something great. Let's watch the 11th plague. Nope, that's gone. Erased from their memory. You know, just gone from the hard drive. It's just not there. They see the Egyptian army, and what do they say? They feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Kind of regretting their initial testimony. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? 
For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Is that what they said? Leave us alone. We want to be slaves. Did they say that? I don't see it. Now, maybe a couple of people said that, but it certainly wasn't the consensus of the group. When they were raining down the plagues, when everyone else was covered in darkness and they're sitting in light, able to do what they're doing, kids are playing in the light and all the Egyptian kids are just shut in. When everyone else's firstborn die and there's cry in the land of Egypt like no one's ever heard before and everyone here that was in the house with the blood on the lentil and the doorpost, their firstborn is, he's hanging out. They're sitting, talking, laughing. They're around the table. They weren't saying, let's stay in Egypt. But in their fear of how difficult this is going to be to trust God, they go, let's just go back to a place where we didn't have to trust anything. We knew what we had. We had to make bricks. We had to get up early. Yeah, they whipped us. Yeah, some of us died. But it wasn't none of this trapped. And, we're, you know, we got armies chasing us. This is just, this is too much. So what does God do? God says, I wanted you trapped. doesn't say that explicitly. But he, he wants them to know why this is the case. In verse 13, Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you only have to be silent. Shh. Be still and watch me go to work. That's why I have you here. I have you here so you can't do anything, and you're at the end of your wick, and you realize you can't do anything. You can't run. You can't retreat. There's no other place to go. There's no one else to call upon. You can't swim across this, this sea, and you can't fight the chariots. All you can do is sit and watch, and that's what I want you to do. I want you to sit still, be silent, and watch me get to work. So Moses stands up, doesn't he? He lifts his staff. The sea splits open. The Israelites walk across on dry ground. The, the Egyptian army is held back by the pillar of fire until God removes the pillar of fire. They say, let's go get them. They pursue with a wall of water on either side of them. But once Israel is out and the Egyptian army is in, God collapses the waters on the Egyptians and they start washing up on the beach. Then they have a worship service and Moses writes his first worship song and that's in chapter 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord. He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider is he has thrown into the sea. So you have a song that recounts what God just did. And they're going to sing this together. They're going to put it to music. When they get together in their circles, they're singing this song together, tucking their kids in at night with it. They're whistling it in the kitchen while they're preparing meals. It's their song. It's their anthem. You'll see what it highlights. Look at verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. It's steadfast. Plague after plague, he protected us and put the hurt on our enemies. Then we're out here trapped in the wilderness, and he opens the sea and allows us to pass, and then as they try to pursue us, he closes it on them. Steadfast, 
steadfast. No matter what happens, no matter what Pharaoh throws at us, God stepped up and God won. He flicked all those false gods of Egypt off of the pedestal so that God could stand up there alone. And he steadfastly shows that over and over and over again. And that's what they're proclaiming in the song. Look how the song ends, verse 17 and 18. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. Who? Your people. So now they look back. Now they're looking forward and saying, God is going to deliver us. He's going to take us to where he wants us to be. We're not going to be stuck out here in the wilderness. And we're not going to go back to Egypt. We're going to go to where he wants us to go. And we're going to get there because he's good. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Amen? That's the faith. He reigns. I don't do it. I don't produce my own stuff. He got me out. That's my testimony. He got me out. And every victory I experience in my walk, the difficulties that I have, how I face temptations, any victory I have is because the Lord is faithful in his steadfast love, and he got me out, and he will get me there. But it doesn't last long. It doesn't last long. You get to verse 22 of chapter 15. Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. So you know this isn't like two generations later or three years later. This is like they just left the Red Sea and they're probably still humming the last stanza of this song. And Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Before it was, therefore, it was named Marah, which means bitterness in Hebrew. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Therefore, the Lord made them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. And if you were them, you'd be thinking, why didn't he take us directly here in the first place? There's palms, there's springs everywhere, <laughs> they're bathing, they're drinking, there's water everywhere. Why did we stop at Marah? Because God knew that Marah would prove that they were singing the song, but it didn't stick. That their memory is really, really short. They'll sing the song until they're thirsty and look around them and they don't see water and then it's time to grumble and complain instead of praise and worship. God wanted them to see that. He didn't have to bring them to that well. He could have brought them to that, this place and he could have made the water sweet before they got there. Why is he playing games? Why is he setting them up in a trap between chariots and a sea? And why does he bring them to a place where after three days of being thirsty, they finally see water and go to drink it and they have to spit it out because it's nasty. Why would he do that to them? when he can clearly just get them to a place of 12 springs? Well, because 
He wants to teach them obedience. He just said that in verses 26 and following. I want to teach you obedience. I'm testing you. I want to see how you respond to difficulty. It's not obedience if you only obey when everything is great. It's obedience when, oops, it looks like if I obey, it's going to be tough for me. Well, if you still obey, even though it looks like it's going to be tough for you, and you still obey, that's obedience. So that's why God does it. That's why he did it. If you're living life right now and you're like, I don't understand why God put this stuff in my life. I don't understand why this is happening. I serve him. I go to church. I read the Bible. I'm trying to raise my kids right. I'm trying to do right by my spouse. And this difficulty, these difficulties keep mounting. What is going on? It's good news. Because God wasn't doing this for the Egyptians. <laughs> he wasn't doing this for the Philistines. He's testing his people because he wants them to progress and be something so that they're ready for the promised land. He doesn't go Egypt straight to promised land. There's this wilderness time of testing and building and maturing and growing. That's why I started the sermon by asking you, how's it going? You know, when's the last time you had a growth spurt? If it's been a while, God might have to show up and do something to arrest our attention and force us to trust him. We might have to get a little bit thirsty. We might have to get a little bit scared, not of an Egyptian army, but of something else that is going to force you. Look, you're going to trust doctors. You're going to trust people. You're going to trust Facebook advice. Or are you going to trust God? I wish it ended there. Short memories. They forgot the plagues. They were scared of Egypt. Then he opens the sea, swallows them up, and saves them. And they wrote a song that remembers that. But then they were thirsty, and then they forgot about the Red Sea. But then not only did he make this water sweet, sweet to the point where they probably, hey, let's hang out here. Now I got something better. Twelve Springs time. Spa and resort of the Middle East. They shouldn't forget now, right? Until they got hungry. They go to the wilderness of sin, not sin as in something you do wrong, but sin as in Sinai. Verse 2 of chapter 16, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Not that we just wish we would have gone back to Egypt, we wish God would have just killed us there, instead of protecting us with the Passover land. Next level disrespect. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now listen to what they're saying. They didn't literally forget the Passover. They're just going back and wishing it had been different. Forget, I wish you would have never saved me. I wish you would have never brought me out of Egypt. I wish you would have just killed me with the rest of the Egyptians because you know what you did, God? You brought us all the way out here just to kill us anyway. They really think the God that passed them over, the God that protected them from the plagues, the God that split the Red Sea, split a sea? The God that makes bitter water sweet, the God that brings them to springs of water and provides for them, is going to suddenly be like, oh, never mind. I ran, out of, I ran out of genie juice. You know, I got no power left. I, I had no tricks left. You ran out of wishes, guys. I, I'm sorry. Do they really believe that? Or are they just saying things in anger that are stupid? 
I don't know. But you see, they have a short memory again. Not that they literally forget what happened, but they functionally forget what God had done. And they accuse him of bringing them out here just to watch them starve to death. Now I get it, I get pretty cranky when I'm hungry. But they're not remembering how God provides. But you know, God is, he's, he's on this. He is on this. He waits for them to get hungry before he does manna. He doesn't do manna right out the bat. He waits for them to grumble first, just so we can teach him again. How easily you forget. Come and ask me. Don't come and grumble. But no, they come and grumble. What does he do? Verse 4, I'm going to rain bread. What do you mean? We're going to plant wheat crops? No, or no planting, no digging, no tilling. It doesn't need rain. You wake up in the morning, and as soon as the dew on the ground dissipates, what's going to be left behind are these flakes of wafers that taste like thin cookies made with honey. Now, you and I, for you and I, honey is, I mean, we have refined, we don't even need honey. We got refined sugar everywhere, right? But they didn't have jars of honey at the local pantry. I don't even know if they had the big boxes of bees with the crazy people with the the hazmat suits that go in there and smoke the bees out so they can get honey. They had to like find it in a tree and like extract this stuff. Honey was rare. But every morning you're going to wake up and somebody already baked it for you. Little thin wafer crackers that taste sweet like honey. What about protein? Don't worry about it. As soon as it starts getting dark, quail, they're going to come flying in the, in the, in the camp. You can just snatch them right out of the sky. There's just going to be so many of them. So he feeds them miraculously with one condition. The condition is don't collect for tomorrow, only collect for today. Like when Jesus prayed, give us this day our daily bread. Give me enough what I need for today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow, Worrying about tomorrow is a sin, Jesus said, right? And when he taught us to pray, he said, pray, give us this day our daily bread. And what God is doing for them, he's saying, you're going to collect stuff. They called it manna. You're going to collect this and you're going to put it in a half gallon. uh, And that's it. That's what you get. What about tomorrow? You open your tent again and you collect. But you will not go, what if God changes his mind? What if God's steadfast love isn't fast anymore? Let me collect a little extra in case God becomes something we don't, we don't, that he's not today. He becomes different tomorrow than he was yesterday, and I'm going to collect a little extra. Well, some of them did. They collected extra. And in the morning, they open the jar, and it's full of maggots, and it's nasty, right? And it's God going, no extras. Daily. Except for the day before the Sabbath, you would collect for the Sabbath because on the Sabbath you're not allowed to collect. We're going to get back to Sabbath in a few sermons from now. Long chapter 16, right, on bread, the importance of bread. Now you think about it, this generation, 40 years of manna, this is very important to them. And so God has uh, rules, he explains no extra gathering, how to gather before the Sabbath. You will not do it any other way. And he's doing this so that they will remember. Now God instills a daily reminder that he is miraculously faithful. They don't have to think back to the Red Sea. They don't have to think back to the bitter waters made sweet at Marah. 
every morning they open the tent, and there's the reminder right there. I'm faithful. I provide. I'm faithful. I provide. They can't forget now, right? Chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Now, now, now God's, now he's just playing with them, right? Because it was always different. Chariots are facing them. That was one test. They can't cross an ocean, right? That was one test. Then they had uh, no water to drink. That was another test. Then they had no food to eat. That was another test. Now he takes them back to the thirst again. Let's try this one again. Let, let's do a repeat of this one and see how you do this time. There's no water at Rephidim. At least no water to drink. Verse 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses. Man, what happened to the song of chapter 15? Are they singing it anymore? They just collected manna that morning. But as soon as there's no water. Doesn't matter about the Red Sea. Doesn't matter about the worship song that we sing. It doesn't matter about what's in front of me when I open my tent. As they're wiping the crumbs off of this manna, off their beard, they're going, where is the water? Right? So, verse 2, therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. They didn't even bother complaining this time. There's just a straight up command. Give us water, you know. Give us water to drink. And Moses says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Don't you want to just go, man, just go back to Egypt then. If it was so good back in Egypt, go back. But God in his mercy and his poise and his steadfast love, he responds. Moses cries to him in verse 4. What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Oreb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Whoa. What did you eat this morning? What was for dinner last night? Oh, yeah, I had a quail manna sandwich. Where did you get that quail? Your hunting skills? Your trapping skills? Oh, no, they just fly into camp every morning. Is the Lord among us or not? It's, it's beyond short memory. It's, they can't even pass a minute before they just forget God's providing ways. And when they forget his providing ways, they lose trust in him. So the default setting is to grumble and complain and to fear and to worry and stress out. Is the Lord among us or not? Finally, they get attacked. God prevented them from the Philistines, but Amalek, an old villain from Genesis, he came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. 
At least they got their water first. God knows what he's doing. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us to go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I'll stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Verse 10, Joshua said to Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, presumably with that staff, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Think about that. I'm going to erase people's memory of Amalek, but I want you to write down in a book as a memorial that I did it because what I don't want people to forget is that I did it. Don't forget that I did. Now, I know you're forgetful people, and I know the songs aren't enough, and the man every morning is enough, but a book to memorialize what I did on your behalf. And Moses built an altar, verse 15, and Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Speaking of God's continued faithfulness, he's not going to give up. He's not a God that conquers Amalek this generation, and then he can't conquer anything the next generation. From generation to generation, as we sung earlier, God is faithful he proves it over and over and over again but the people of israel have a short memory and it's easy to look at them and be frustrated with them but how different are we really it's easy for us to say well you know we don't see the same miracles a sea splitting open and you know a pillar of fire to lead at night and these amazing physical you know natural oddities that are happening in front of us you could see it with your eyes but christ has real brought real victories in our lives the kind that many of them didn't get to see hearts of stone made into hearts of flesh so that we can respond to what god is calling us to respond to and we can look back to in egypt and see what he's brought us out of how he didn't collapse an ocean of judgment on top of us, but Jesus took it instead. That's what the waters represent, judgment. That's what baptism represents. When someone goes down in that baptism, the flood of judgment happened to Christ, and because Christ took it for me, I can come out the other side of that judgment alive. Jesus did that for us, and we have incredible testimonies to be grateful for but we have really short memories. Uh, in 1992, a man by the name of Eugene Pauly sat across the dinner table with his wife, and his wife said, Eugene, Michael's coming over today. Who's that? Michael, your son. Who's Michael? The boy you raised all these years. I don't know who that is. They began to discover 
soon after that that uh, Eugene had something wrong with his brain that prevented him from remembering anything past 10 minutes ago. So if you met Eugene and he asks you, hey, how's the weather outside? Should I bring a jacket? And you say, ah, it's raining a little bit, but it's not too cold. Just, just take a North Face jacket. A few seconds will pass by and he'll say, hey, how's the weather outside? You can imagine how he drove his wife nuts at home, just saying the same things over and over again, asking the same things over and over again. He'd wake up, get out of bed, and stretch and be hungry for eggs and bacon. He goes to the kitchen and cooks eggs and bacon, he eats it, and he goes back, and then he literally forgets that he ate eggs and bacon. I feel like eggs and bacon. He gets up 10, 15 minutes later, he goes to the kitchen, he cooks up eggs and bacon. Right, it gets to the point where he's getting unhealthy. Right? The doctors tell the wife, Get him out of the house. Take him on walks. But you have to be real careful because if you leave him out there, you know, he'll never make it home. He can't tell you his address. He can't tell you what street he lives on. He forgets everything. And one day, she calls for his name in the house. He doesn't respond. She starts looking all over the house, in the hallways, in the bedrooms, in the bathroom. He's not there. And she goes out in the street, asks neighbors, and he's gone because he went for a walk by himself. They eventually found him, but doctors, scientists, nurses have been studying this guy's brain ever since, trying to figure out how does that work? Memory. How does memory work? What, what's damaged such that we can't remember what happened? And when you see a guy like Eugene Pauly, it looks like the Israelites. What? Who's, who's going to feed me? Who's gonna, you just had manna, man. Who's, wait, who's feeding me? Just immediately forgetting, right? Immediately erasing everything that's past and almost literally approaching God like it's all new. What kind of God is he? Is he how is he actually going to handle today? What is he actually going to do tomorrow? I'm not sure. The angels look down on us and they're like, seriously, based on the mountain of evidence behind you? Wow, I forgot about that. We're like Eugene Pauly's. I have a hard time trusting God because we have really short memories. What I find fascinating about that story is how they find, found him when he got lost on that walk. He came back home on his own. That was a new, that was something new. This guy can't remember his son. He can't remember someone that he met two minutes ago. He, he can't remember anything. He's 70 years old. If you ask him, how old are you? He'll say about 53 and he'll tell you that every year. Because when his brain got damaged, he was 53. So every year, about 53, can't remember anything, and gets, takes a walk in the woods and comes back home by himself. So the doctors send researchers to go to his house and ask him, what, how did this happen? How did you find your way home? I'm not sure. Let's go on that walk together. They go on the walk together. As they're coming back, he's like, okay, which street is yours? I don't know. So they walk you know, down the right street. They go to the, where the house is. Which house is yours? Which front door is yours? I really don't know. Later, they're sitting in, in the kitchen, uh, or they're sitting in the living room, and the researcher asks them, give me a, it gives them a blank piece of paper. Give me a layout of your house. You've lived in this house for like 30 years. Layout of your house. He can't do anything with a pencil. I have no idea where the bedroom is, where the hallway is. I've, they're sitting in the house. I have no idea. 
So in the middle of the interview, Eugene gets up and he goes to use the bathroom and he comes back after washing his hands, sits down. The researcher goes, he doesn't know the layout of the house, but he didn't get directions to go to the bathroom. What is going on? So the researcher asks a clever question. If you were hungry right now, I ask, where's the kitchen? I have no idea. Which one of these doors do you need to get to the kitchen? I have no idea. What, were you suppo- what do you do right now if you feel hungry? He gets up, he goes to the kitchen, opens a cabinet, grabs a jar of almonds. He says, I'd snack on this. What they started to discover with Eugene is that the place in his brain that stores memory, like a hard drive, that's been destroyed. But there's another place in his brain that stores habits, routines, that is not something that you can cognitively remember and write down when you're examined, right, on an exam, write it down because you remember it. He doesn't remember it that way. It's a habit that's so ingrained that he just instinctively knows where the bathroom is. He instinctively knows how to get home from the walk. Why? Because his wife took him on that walk every day for months, for years, and then he did it on his own, not by going, oh, that tree, make a left. He just, the instinct of making the left at that tree because of habits. Now, I come to this passage, and I'm going, what is God doing here? He knows he's got a forgetful people that as soon as something is passed, They forget. They forget what God did. So he wants to ingrain habits, doesn't he? They write a song. Songs that they're supposed to sing over and over and over again. Why do we still sing songs like, How Great Thou Art? Why do we still sing that? Because it's still true. And just like it reminded our parents and their parents, it reminds us today and it will remind our kids these songs that we sing of truths about God that serve to remind us, like that manna every day, you open your tent and there it is. The habits that God instills in your life to increase our memory and mitigate against memory loss. We call these spiritual disciplines, the things that we do every day, every week, that force us to remember what God is like. Spending time in his word, that's our daily bread. Because we don't live by bread alone. What do we live by? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that's what you live by. Spend time in it every day. And so we sing songs. We have Bible studies. We have devotionals. We spend time in prayer. We gather together. Like that passage says in Colossians 3.16, admonish and teach one another with the songs and the, uh, the psalms and the hymns that we sing together. We are reminding each other not to forget That God is a good, providing God of steadfast love. Whatever you're facing, whatever difficulty it is, whatever's hanging you up, it's not insurmountable. It's not something that cannot be overcome. But God allows these things into our lives to test us to see if we'll quarrel and grumble and complain by forgetting yesterday and all that he's done, or instead, remember. Remember what he's done. Remember what kind of God he is. And not to ask, is the Lord among us or not? But instead to go, the Lord is here. The Lord is here. And if these waters taste bitter right now, he knows. He knows. And I'm going to be still and sit back and watch God do his thing and make bitter waters sweet as I stay faithful to him.
And the way we do that is by not forgetting. Instead, remembering and clinging to the truths of the faith that tell us who God is and what He's like, that He is a God of steadfast love. 